Oh my God. Yeah, there it is. There it is. There it is. Press the button. Hello, everyone. So now I am with Andrew once again. So Andrew was with me to you do can't some. Keep me away. Hannah, no, it's good. It's good. We're getting the chance to do some illich. Uh, Andrew was was with me to talk about Hannah Arendt, and now we're back here to do some illich. So kind of polar opposites. But before we get into this, Andrew, what do you do? Well, I, I, I would disagree with the comment about polar opposites. Uh, do, 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 do you know uh, uh, Ray Brazier? Ray Brazier did a piece on, on Prometheism, and he was talking about these different thinkers who regard the human condition as finite, and he brought uh, Arendt and Illich together. Oh, really? Um, uh, along with some uh, Heidegger, too. See, because I was under the impression that not many people took up Illich in any kind of academic way, really. It is strange every now and again he pops up. Yeah. Um, which I think is uh, fascinating. I think um, everyone everyone who reads him takes him seriously, but not uh, many people read him because yeah, he was, he never became part of the canon. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but I mean, yeah. part of um, my interest in the election nowadays comes from my dissertation topic on uh, Simone Weil on intellectual leprosy, the idea that she elaborated in on the abolition of all political parties. Um, and in that essay, she mentions how a kind of uh, binary form of thinking, of thinking for or against an idea, um, has snuck into education. Um, so at the moment, I am concentrating on uh, opposing l the theory of a liberal arts education with critical pedagogy and one of the thinkers of critical pedagogy that I'm dealing with is Yvonne Illich um, along with like uh, uh, Poilo Freire um, with whom uh, Illich did a lot of work in South America so that's where my uh, current interest in uh, Illich lies but we both have kind of uh, very uh, intriguing origin stories uh, with our interest in Illich. Yes, and we do. And how he ended up on our bookshelves. Yes. Um, I, and really, the one of the most striking things is that uh, Illich is just a little bit of a rare read. And I happened to stumble upon him by having him assigned to me about, oh, what year are we? 2018. 2018. Um, probably about 2011 mm -hmm. uh, in Montreal when I was doing school there. And then, yeah, it just kind of snowballed. I know that it was a pretty difficult text to read at the time, but I remember at the time having problems with it personally, but now having the chance to come back to it, I, I, I've had the opportunity to rethink some of my initial assessments. But you have, I know you, you mentioned this before, but you have a very interesting uh, semi-anecdote about Illich. Indeed. Well, I um, for my masters, I was uh, taught by uh, Barry Sanders. Um, I worked with him very cl closely. He's a medievalist and historian of ideas, and he um, met Illich sometime in the um, 80s or 90s, and they decided to collaborate together. 
um, on a book called uh, ABC, The uh, Alphabetization of the Popular Mind, which was all about the shift in um, medievalism from uh, oral culture to literate culture and how that affects the way we think about ourselves uh, today. So if, if, if he would often rave about um, Illich and he seemed like quite a character. Um, and before his death, Ivan Illich's death, um, he, he suffered from, from uh, brain cancer, I think. And um, if, if you're familiar with Illich's work, you, you would know you, you know that he wrote *Medical Nemesis*, which was this uh, critique of the medical establishment in the same way that he critiques the establishment of schools and schooling society. So um, he refused to go to um, a typical Western doctor to have the tumor in his, uh, on his brain surgically removed. And it manifested itself on his face. Oh, yeah. No, very... I mean, it, 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 it was uh, very visible. And uh, Barry told me about the story of when uh, uh, Illich came to Claremont to give a talk with Barry, because they often give talks together. And one, one of Barry's colleagues went over to Illich and said, man, you've got to get that tumor in your uh, head checked out. And Illich just apparently just reached over to him took him by the shoulder and said the difference between you and me my friend is that you can see my mortality but I cannot see yours yeah that's and that's just like and that's very uh, typical of uh, Illich's writing style too because there are there are moments in the schooling society definitely where he um, makes these very um what's what, I mean about bold statements I guess but not not in the sense of like um in a sense of outrageous statements but he, I mean he was trained as a priest as a child that's so true he's, yeah. when he's making these pronouncements he has a kind of scriptural quality they have a scriptural quality to them yeah um, and he's like um, he was deeply knowledgeable about other languages as well uh, so when he's using words he's very, I mean he is he knows the etymological history of all words um, so he's very careful about the way he chooses them, and he knows how to turn uh, a phrase um, in a way that has like the, the right uh, rhythm and impact. Yeah, I and you, he does come off like um, he's an English writer, and what I mean by that is that he he does appear to really be a kind of analytic thinker. Uh, in uh, that this is this is you know that easily digestible. Not mm -hmm. that not that the ideas are, but that his writing style is clear. Mm -hmm. which is something I wouldn't say is indicative of other writers of the 1970s, especially those coming out of continental philosophy. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, for your own part, if you... Why why was his work accessible, if I could even say that? Because he's the, it, it's coming out of his experience as a teacher. I mean, he, I mean, he, he also uh, worked with Paulo uh, Freire, uh, in South America, and he, t he talks about um, an introduction before the chapter of We Must Disestablish School. Um, he's talking about um, the experiences that form that influenced him for the book. Of um, he's uh, uh, meeting uh, uh, Everett uh, Raymer. They're talking a lot to, to, to one another. Uh, this experience of meeting him influenced. Um, his. Let me rephrase that. 
Um, meeting Everett Reamer inspired him to question the value of extending obligatory schooling to all people. Um, they meet regularly at the Center for Intercultural Documentation in uh, Mexico. Um, there are people at the center who are encouraging Illich to test his ideas on education in, with against the experience of people in Latin America um, and Africa. Um, and it, it, he just lists a bunch of people who have influenced him throughout this entire project, which goes from Paulo Freire, who I've mentioned, Peter Berger, uh, Jose Maria Bulnes, as well as Joseph Fitzpatrick, Jonathan Holt, Angel Quintero, and on and on and on. So this is a book that comes out of uh, countless conversations and countless talks that other people have given. So I think that it is not a product of someone who's been sitting in their study and pondering this question for months and months. It's someone who's actually um, elaborated these ideas in front of other people and uh, been challenged. And from that uh, interaction has been able to sharpen the, the analysis and also compare that analysis to the experience of people who are actually uh, trying to embark on a cri critical critical pedagogical project yeah I, and i think i think you're really right about that <clears throat> in that there is the meeting of praxis and theory like he was going to all oh, totally. of these all of these different um conferences all these different kind of international meetings with political leaders and intellectuals and whatever to mm -hmm. talk about this very issue which is centers around the question, should we dismantle school? Or should we disestablish school? To which the answer is quite simple for him. Yes, but why? Mm -hmm. and, and how, and how. And how. And how. And how. So I guess if we move through this methodically, we would get or we the first point from the first chapter, why must we disestablish school? Mm -hmm. So... Um, the first one of the first points he really makes is that the school teaches people to confuse process and substance. So they no longer they don't learn what they need to learn because they actually need to learn it. Rather, they get confused and instead become obsessed with the very procedure of the act of learning through a very regimented, mandated, mm -hmm. controlled system as opposed to the possibility of learning something that might be useful to them. Mm -hmm. As just a, you know, starting point. Oh, certainly, and I think he's he expands his insight into um, a critique of institutionalized society as a whole, of uh, people who um, are pressed into a position of dependence on institutions to make the decisions for them, um, and he talks about the modernization of poverty. Um, that is exported to that was would be exported to the continents of South America and Africa at this time, um, which stank of a Western sense of a, a sense of Western superiority. Yeah, and yeah. Um, they supplied the the Western nations supplied the money to these nations to. Uh, create the similar kind of institutions that would be found, found in, in Europe or, or North America, which meant that people living in those nations suffered from a sense of like uh, psychological um, impotence mm. because um, all of a sudden they were placed in a 
economic and political situation where they were no longer allowed to um, autonomously decide what kinds of communities they wanted to live in, what kind of uh, learning they wanted to engage in. Um, and I think that for Illich, uh, he's very conscious of how this dynamic has been expanded to all facets of society and um, how, well, he talks about this later in the phenomenology of school, but um, how schooling is an attempt to um, inculcate this dependence on institutions on children um, and prevents any uh, independence in you know um or curiosity in in the child right um because you know if you put each morning where you wake up and go to school what the stuff that you're learning has already been prepared by someone else yeah uh who was in charge and you're no longer um uh, well actually let me rephrase that you were never allowed responsibility for your own learning in the first place yeah yeah absolutely and this is my first concern with this what might the alternative look like in in your mind and we, you know we'll get through it in in his words but right off the bat from what you said because in his words um the increasing reliance on institutional care adds a new dimension to their helplessness psychological impotence the ability inability to fend for themselves because i can hear resonating well with this are some kind of conservative sentiments about the welfare state and stuff like that. Well, it, he brings up the um, the welfare bureaucracies. Yeah. Um, and I remember thinking at that point, oh, hang on, this can be co-opted into a project where uh, conservatives could be like, well, we're just going to take away um, public funding of the schools because you know, it's part of this kind of radical de-schooling pr- uh, project, but that's uh, without an adequate replacement um, it's just the gutting out of uh, social security. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, and of course, this is not in the, the sense that um, Illich is meaning because he's writing in a time before neoliberalism really comes out, of the, uh, comes out as a dominant political force uh, in North America and Europe and across the world, really. Um, so when he's placing those criticisms of uh, public institutions and uh, bureaucracy and welfare, he's seeing it from a perspective of uh, Western nations embarking on this kind of neo-colonial project and right. trying to modernize um, uh, other nations to make them more compatible with the world market. Um, and that means that, I mean, it's a disruption of the communities that already existed there. Um, and, and the ways of thinking and the ways of learning and the ways of, you know, uh, uh, working that were associated with them. Um, so when he, like, when he really, like, uh, has this um, vicious uh, attack on on public institutions, it's about how... They don't serve. They don't serve the purpose that they purport to serve. Right. You know, mm-hmm. because they have this um, warped understanding of education. Yeah. Um, 
and later in the books he i mean we're jumping ahead now but he, he talks he distinguishes between manipulative institutions and convivial institutions and mm-hmm. i think that is pretty central to uh what he's trying to get out but you're, i mean he i was reading this morning the there was, there was also another book published of after the schooling what okay um, and yeah. there were a lot of responses uh, to uh, Illich's initial project, and he, d- he does talk about how um, different factions within um, North America, specifically, mm-hmm. um, are really um, uh, glad to hear this critique of the public school schooling system or public funding for those kinds of schools, because it because it kind of um, aligns with their own agenda, but doesn't have the same results that um, Illich is aiming for. Um, and I think he he talks about it in terms of superficial solutions so I I think when it comes to the more conservative critiques of institutionality um, he thinks well these sorts of factions or kind of ideologues proposing solutions that don't address the real problem yeah, um, they're shifting it elsewhere because I mean, if, if you draw funding out of it and don't provide a substantial basis to for kind of de-schooled education and just abandon people mm-hmm. rather than really fulfilling their uh, needs. Yeah, and the one way that he kind of inoculates his project from being read as, as in that way is when he uh, evokes Castro. Who has that one passage oh, where yeah. Castro says, uh, uh, Castro talks as if he wanted to go in the direction of de-schooling when he promises that by 1980, Cuba will be able to dissolve its university since all of life in Cuba will be an educational experience. Which is kind of a funny way to think about it. And I read it I, essentially the same way as you're saying, where Illich wants to dissociate the thought of education from schools where it's not necessarily a matter of schools being something that are threatening in their own right, but it's our kind of implicit, unwavering support of them as being our educators or being the zones in which we are educated, just as he's not necessarily opposed to the idea of health or the idea of zones of getting healthy, Mm -hmm. but how we associate hospitals with health or whatever have you, or Mm -hmm. police with safety or anything like that, you know, and that'll get into, we'll get into the institutional stuff, you know, as we go. We had to just kind of, um, to affirm what you said there. But one of the other things that he notices about the school is that it it is particularly good at um, creating uh, distinctions between both the rich and the poor, not only between those that actually can afford to go to school in many Latin American countries mm-hmm. where schooling is kind of enforced upon them, right. but within the school itself, where rich children are kind of, when they're put among other poor children, there are frictions that, that occur. Mm-hmm. And the school fosters these kinds of distinctions and these kind of, cla- these kind of class uh, struggles or these, um, these issues in which the poor people always get the short end of the stick, right? Schools where in poorer communities get the fewest resources, and mm-hmm. which isn't uh, doesn't fly under the radar of Illich's um, analysis here, because it could be read that well, how could you be in support of any kind of schooling? Why are you suddenly 
in favor of having better resources for some schools. So, and that's just kind of, I'm trying to articulate that he's not necessarily opposed to the idea of schooling per se, but in our, the number of problems associated with it. All right, from, from, from my recollection, what he talks about with the division between uh, rich and poor students is his emphasis on the fact that a lot of learning happens outside of the school. Yeah. Um, yeah. And if you're um, more economically secure, then your parents can, you know, uh, have the job security and the free time because, you know, they work nine to five and they can go, 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 uh, come back in the evening and they, they can read to you from books or you can afford to go on holiday. Whereas if you're in a more economically precarious situation, uh, your your parents might not be entirely present. They might be like totally exhausted from their work, and they don't have the free energy to devote any time to your own uh, their children's uh, betterment. Because just that's how the um, well, that's how capitalism works. And um, I, I, I think that um, as a way of puncturing the illusion that. Uh, school is the great equalizer exactly yeah. uh, because there is time outside of school and there are circumstances outside of school where uh, people benefit from their place in the economic hierarchy um, and that feeds into the aims of education that are uh, embedded in the school system um, because it's um, all about I mean, to progress through the school system, you need to have you have an obligation to have already earned a diploma or a cert all the certification to to gain access to the next stage. Like uh, from uh, middle school, you need to get the right grades to go to the right high school, and from the right high school, you go to the and right it's mandatory. sick form. And uh, it's mandatory. There are laws. Like, you, know, you, you can never just like suddenly slip into yeah, yeah, yeah. university no. after not going to high school. Yeah, and isn't that interesting as well, where there, it hits a point where there are certain laws not only about making sure people actually show up to school, but about keeping certain people out of it as well. Oh, totally. Hang on. Um, I remember something that my ex-landlord, uh, actually, no, I, I used to call him my landfather because <laughs> I've, 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 I lived with, I, I was a lodger for um, a couple um, and they took on a parental role because I was just entirely new to the city and I didn't know yeah. anyone. Yeah. Uh, so it, I, it felt uh, impersonal to call him my landlord or landlady, so I just called him my land parents. Um, so my, my, my landfather was uh, saying something about um, how he would love to teach history um, and choose the curriculum to teach the students and he knew that that would only really be possible if you were to become a university professor and for that you'd have to go through I mean it, it, Even he, then, yeah, he yeah. was an engineer so I mean he had no like a formal academic training despite being very vastly knowledgeable about uh, military history specifically but also economic history um, is, uh, 
secondarily. But he would have to go through getting a BA and an MA and then a PhD to be in a position to teach the kind of classes that he would want. Whereas uh, Illich takes that kind of um, hierarchy of uh, qualification away and some of the proposals he makes later in the book. But uh, he definitely... Um, I wrote, uh, well, let me, wait, let me take a different tact. Um, well, he says he, right. he, he, he talks about learning and uh, the assignment of social roles being fused together in schooling, right. and this feeds into the problem of only becoming an educator once you've had the right for qualification or progressing to later stages in the school system because of those uh, previous uh, qualifications, because that is your social role. Yeah, your social role is the certification that you have to justify your own knowledge. Yeah. It doesn't matter what you actually know, it only matters what uh, we can measure you know. Exactly. That makes sense. What, what the school has recognized you capable of so that you can teach in the school. Oh yes, right? indeed, yeah, yeah. So, in, 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 he puts it in this way, which I think summarizes that idea well, where he says, large universities make the futile attempt to match them by multiplying their courses, and they generally fail since they are bound to curriculum course structure and bureaucratic mm -hmm. administration. Right. So there is that a little bit of that fantasy. And I mean, you know, we could look at us, um, you know, we're still taking courses after how many, how many years have we been in the institution? I mean, I've taken years out. So, but I mean, I think all in all four. this is coming to my sixth year of post-secondary education. Yeah. It's yeah. And I, I, I just like, well, I'm, as I'm, I, I, I now qualify to be a legitimate teaching assistant. That's yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly it. And I think he, he puts it extremely well just following that point where he says um, the alternative, giving us kind of a, um, giving us a sneak peek at what he'll get to, where he says that the most radical alternative to school would be a network or service which gave each man man the same opportunity to share in a universal sense yes the the universal man his current concern with others motivated by the same concern now if we think of schooling in say primary school or secondary school what we see in those situations is no opportunity for anyone to actually bring to the table their own interests or oh gosh don't worry erupted there don't, don't worry that wasn't that wasn't a bomb or anything it was a sparkling water yeah. <laughs> but it's uh, hydrated somehow for people in mandatory schooling they aren't allowed to bring to the table anything that they would find interesting themselves rather it's about them among their however many 30 peers or other students I, indeed. they have to learn the exact same thing which doesn't at all allow for any kind of um, I guess individual expression when it comes to mm -hmm. what one learns and I remember, to be anecdotal about this, I was um, I took a stab at teaching high school for a little while in um, in the country somewhere, and one of the big things was that students just didn't want to be there. And I happened to be teaching a course that was um, kind of like individual, individually planned courses. Uh, uh, I don't know what the actual. That's, that sounds very neoliberal. I mean, just oh individually planned courses. Uh, like it was, yeah. But one of the things was that. This, many of the students just didn't want to be there. They wanted to be at home working on the, their farm, literally. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's that's what they wanted to do. And I, I was like, why can't they do that? Like, they, they're like 16, 17-year-old 
people like there aren't kids why why do they have to be here doing this like they're gonna if they go and work on their farm they're gonna make a hell of a lot more money than going through school (laughs) and being going through debt and uh but when did you start caring about school like uh, actually no so i mean considering that we're talking in ilch's terminology uh when did you start caring about your own education when i um i think only when i really hit grad school really i wow. university my undergrad was a like i enjoyed it a lot but and i and i really did love it as far as the content went as far as the stuff i was learning but i didn't put myself into it as much as i could have i was seeking the opportunity to do the bare minimum mm-hmm. that that would still grant me decent grades uh but it was only when i hit grad school and i said i got to be in this because i actually want to be here like really um you know and it helps that you know we kind of get paid to do it too oh, yeah, to, to some extent yeah. thank you canada well in this, <laughs> actually in the states they get more money uh but in some cases but yeah i don't know what about you but it also costs more money <laughs> yeah exactly i was at 17 17 you, exactly you, you, do you know the month no pretty much t- turning 17 um 17 years it's the, it's the uh, it was just the point where i started to to fall in love with with books oh uh and with um with ideas um and i started to to, to do independent reading outside of my classes and to become interested in you know intellectual history um, but before then, I was very much the same as you of trying to do the complete minimum um, to uh, pass classes. And I mean, like for my high school, I took like uh, what was it? It was like a, a drama, uh, music, history, and geography. And the only reason I I took geography as one of my main class, my main elective classes was uh, because my mother said I, I couldn't do art. I couldn't do like music, drama, and art, and then history. Um, but those were, the, those were the things that really um, encouraged me, and that were, uh, what, uh, drama and music. And I never felt like um, school in the same way. I would just sort of go in, for, for, for music class, I would go into this secret little corridor that led outside the music department and down to the fire exit and just sort of fiddle around on a guitar and fiddle around on um, a keyboard and try to figure out how um, how different harmonies work, how how you could combine chords with melodies. Um, and with drama, I'd just be there writing scripts all the time. I, when I, was, I went to drama school for my undergraduate, so um, a lot of that learning was... You know, just kind of a fusion of my um, enthusiasms. Um, I, I think that's the experience that Illich wants people to encounter. Yeah, he wants he wants people to be really wrapped up in their uh, in their learning and to do it on a on a more voluntary and uh, intentional basis. He feels like um, anything that comes across com- comes across as unquestioned, as an obligation, uh, should be re-examined. Yeah, 
Um, I, I, yeah. I, I, I think there was this, this great quote in um, in the book that has this kind of strange resonance with what we're doing right now about um, it's connected to the idea of the um, sort of network that he imagines that will be that will put that, that will connect people um, that will connect people according to a, a common interest yep. like, where, where they can meet and discuss something and it's usually reduced to something very very simple mm-hmm. um, because he talks about uh, this is quoting Illich right now. Uh, the idea of matching by title is thus radically different from the theory on which the great books club, for example, were built. Instead of relying on the selection by some Chicago professors, any two partners can choose any book for further analysis. Right. Yeah. Um, so it's like it's as simple as walking over to someone in the bar. I mean, it depends which bar you're in, uh, and saying, like, <laughs> "What are you reading at the moment?" Yeah. Um, and it's just great to uh, you know come across someone who's sort of reading or has read the same thing as you, where it's kind of not necessarily represented uh, in the in formal institutions of education in the same yeah. way. Yeah, yeah, they they certainly yeah. It it is determined what you read far in advance. Oh know, yeah, before your interests could possibly take over at any point and and determine for you what you would want to do. Um, so what I have trouble with the idea, not, not because I disagree, but when I think of the concept of the phenomenology of school, <laughs> I think of it because phenomenology is such a, in my mind, oh, such geez. a slippery concept. I'm, I often get confused with it and I've taken the time. I've read Husserl and Merleau-Ponty and, and, and I, it's like, and I, I, when you reach this chapter, you're like, but where is the phenomenology? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I'm like, okay. Are we deal? Are we dealing with the the topic of? And I, I had it explained to me once in a pretty pretty simple way. I, I asked a friend of mine like, "What is phenomenology?" And he was like, "It's the study of appearances." Oh yeah, that's like the basic definition. And yeah. I was like, "Okay," but then then <laughs> but you which get the, one? Like, How? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> then you get into like feminist phenomenology and then suddenly it becomes a whole thing about embodiment and the body and how how mm. bodies are excluded or included or anything like that. And I'm thinking, holy god. What the hell does Illich mean by that here? And I don't know if you have an answer because I, I don't. I, 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 I'm, I'm baffled by the way he's talking about the phenomenology of school, um, and I don't know. Okay, this well, is going to be like a far-fetched interpretation. Well, that yeah, but that's, like yeah. maybe it's like a reference to. Hegel's phenomenology of spirit. I, th- I think that's what he was doing. It's I about mean, this like kind of dialectic of where you have these uh, these concepts of like the three main points in the phenomenology of school is as age, as the teachers and the pupils, and full time attendance. Right. And later in the book, um, he talks about the general education of new formal educa- educative institutions, and it's just all these solutions that. Um, basically uh, counter what he talks about in the phenomenology of school because uh, what page is it I have, I have terrible I have terrible handwriting so my notes are always useless <laughs> um, so okay so f- a first point in the phenomenology of school is age right and the three points of that is you know uh, uh, well I mean the, the, the largest point is that 
school groups, people according to age, um, and it's based on three premises. Uh, children belong in school, children learn in school, and children can only be taught in school. And he addresses that much later, um, of saying that a good educational system should provide all who want to learn with access to available resources any time in their lives. Right. The second uh, point in the phenomenology of school is that it divides people into relations of teachers and pupils. Um, and w when it comes to the characteristics later in the book, he says... Uh, a good educational system should empower all who want to share what they know to find those who learn it, uh, who want to learn it from them. So this is a way of addressing the teacher-pupil division. And then the third point is full-time attendance. Um, and he talks about the three roles of teacher um, in this section. If there's teacher as custodian, uh, teacher as moralist, and teacher as uh, therapist. Let's actually go back to um, that point because I want to. I think it'd be good to just to discuss what he means by that. Um, teacher's custodian is a way of the teacher uh, leading the pupil through the ceremony or ritual of um, education. Yeah, it's the process of like when you go through different grades, the teacher is still teaching the same curriculum, unless like the government has changed it. Thanks, Doug Ford. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the teacher's moralist is uh, basically the teacher as authority. The teacher is working the place of God or the parents or the church or things like that. Um, so this is why you're scared of your teacher, or. If you want to be a rebel in as a teenager, you rebel against the teacher because the teacher occupies a position as the moralist. Um, and then the teacher is therapist. Um, it's a way of convincing the students that um, if you learn this thing, your life will become better. Right. Or like, to, uh, and the way that teachers in high school if you were being naughty it was like well I'm just trying to do what's best for you yeah uh, I'm trying to teach you the things that you need to know as you go through life yeah um, you won't have a calculator in your pocket when you're trying to figure out these math sums didn't anticipate smartphones um, and then uh, so, so address, to address full time attendance uh, it looks just like furnish all who want to present an issue to the public with the opportunity to make that challenge known so the attendance isn't obligatory, it's not all the time, it's yeah. addressed these specific issues, these specific challenges, these specific um, ideas. So when he's setting them out in the phenomenology of school, uh, it could be thought about as a dialectical process where he's talking about how he's, uh, how the idea of education at the moment is corrupted in these material forms of the school. Mm. Um, and if you go through the process of um, coming to like a better educational system, these ideas will be fulfilled. Yeah. Um, if we de-school society, if we take away like the corrupt material forms. Yeah. Of of what it's doing. So maybe it's just like an allusion to that title. Um, another interpretation would be like this is how people day to day experience school. Right. Like you're a child, sure, yeah. You're a pupil, and there's a teacher, and you have to go there every day. Uh, so I, I think you might be using phenomenology in just the terms of like day-to-day -day experience. Yeah, but he's definitely not talking about it in like the way that anyone else talks about no, phenomenology. No, no, which is why it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. and the, from my own, the biggest thing I take from this chapter 
is the construction of the thing called childhood. And oh, the yeah, the, the, the childhood belongs to the bourgeoisie. Yeah. Because it seems as though, um, and I, I think Illich would agree, that society is not interested in schooling adults in the school. Like, there are other institutions that will take care of that. Well, but, I don't, and also it's seen as a source of embarrassment. For yeah, exa- exactly. And why is that? You know, we talk for hours about that, I'm sure. But because those children in their being young you know the one qualifier i will attach to them they haven't been institutionalized yet so what is the best way to indoctrinate virtually everyone and Althusser has the exact same oh yeah indeed. the exact same remark he's like in order to push ideology down people put them through school yeah. education that's the best way and it seems as though this is only really possible for illich if we've established certain um I guess, axiomatic conditions pertaining to there being this thing called childhood and that those people that have gone through the school system and have been institutionalized or taught to be institutional teachers are therefore more intelligent and therefore in a position to teach these stupid, uninstitutionalized blobs, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So I, you know, doesn't give us an answer to this thing called phenomenology, but... Oh, yeah, indeed. No, it's... It's a... Interesting concepts that gets picked up in after the schooling watch, um, and it gets expanded a bit more. I mean, he really mentions it at the end of this chapter of the hidden curriculum. Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. The hid- this hidden curriculum of schooling adds prejudice and guilt to the discrimination which a society practices against some of its members, and compounds the privilege of others with a new title to condescend to the majority. Just as inevitably, this hidden curriculum serves as a ritual of initiation into a growth-oriented consumer society for rich and poor alike. Right. So it's... I mean, to to go back to the point that he makes about um, students from uh, poorer backgrounds, from poorer nations, they are always placed in a position of inferiority to the better schooled. And this uh, this is where the prejudice and guilt comes from. I feel guilty because I didn't take advantage of the education that was offered to me that would, allow, that would grant me access to these higher echelons right. of education. S- supposedly. And yeah. the prejudice comes from you only have your high school diploma. Yeah, you are inferior. Yeah, exactly. These, I mean, he talks about this later, is in the, with the idea of institutional values. Yeah, but um, those institute that belief in the value of institutionalized values comes from school. Yeah, it comes from the superiority you feel when you get a better grade from someone else. Yeah, it comes from the superiority you feel when you know that your level of education is higher than someone else. Um, where you're higher in the hierarchy of uh, the university. I mean, this is... I mean, I think it would be an interesting conversation to have about uh, superiority and seniority uh, in uh, institutions, because he does mention the sense that people who were educated before other people may feel a sense of inferiority about not hearing about the new, the, the latest trends or the most uh, recent forms of knowledge. That doesn't really correspond, that doesn't really um, match my experience, I think. 
Right. People can be very dismissive of new forms of thinking about things. Like uh, in education? Like in education. Like uni- university? Yeah, I think in the ed- in the university, definitely. Yeah, well, that... And, w- you know, we can certainly think about the way that um, current political rhetoric has taken aim at the university especially, but education. Well, like, I, I mean, I, I think it's interesting that um, some people on the right talk about conservatism as the new counterculture. Yeah, exactly. Rather than being yeah. like, conservatism is just, you know, conservatism. Yeah. It needs to be packaged in the sense of being the rebel against the machine. Yeah. Um, which, which, I mean, it doesn't belong there, um, but it, it needs to be packaged like that to, um, it needs to be, oh, well, let me, let me think about this for a second. I mean, why do they make that move? They make that move because they want to seem as if their insights are new um, and it's just, and they're fighting the establishment because no one, bro, unless you're the establishment, no one like enjoyably supports the establishment. Right. Um, everyone wants to, everyone sympathizes with the underdog, I think. Um, so this is a way of uh, winning hearts. Um, but d- d- for Illich, this is before that whole. I don't know. They were, I mean, this is we live in crazy times. So I mean, I, I, I think it would be in, it would be interesting to rewrite the schooling society for today, um, and really emphasise the point that um, em- emphasise the distinction that Illich has between just sort of you know getting rid of school and the schooling society, right? Um, because, ironically, uh, in neoliberalism, the institutions that deregulate public institutions are still institutions. Yeah. Um, so we still our lives are still determined by institutions. It's just that they package themselves in you know the rhetoric of of liberty, of liberty and free mar- market trade and all of those um, other buzzwords that came from the Chicago School. Um, and it doesn't do the same task as. Illich was intending, or probably for it. I mean, like all of these people, I mean, they would, they would have seen through that in an instant and gone, "This is just bullshit." Yeah, um, you're I mean, it's pure ideology on a certain extent. To a certain extent, of like the things that you're talking about, is just doesn't match what you're actually doing. Exactly. Yeah, and you know, I'll backpedal a bit. Oh, yeah, sorry. I, I, think, I, I think I may have gone on a total round. Sorry, sorry. I'm sorry about that. No, that was good. That was good. I'm. I'm just. Wor- I'm also curious about this, and it's a good segue into the third chapter. Thinking about the ritualization of ritualization progress. Of progress. How, how are the and various myths, right? So, as we were saying it earlier, or speaking about it, um, it was about the the myth of progress, or the myth of uh, the way that going through school somehow attaches more significance to your mental capability than someone who hasn't made it as far or someone who's dropped out. And I have, for my own part, I had a very odd experience or a very odd thing happened to me where as soon as I hit grad school and I was standing up in front of people in like a, a TA setting, I was able to recall information. I was able to, um, 
I was able to explain things in a more coherent manner than I'd ever have before. And all of a sudden I thought, holy shit, like, is this so much that I've actually learned all these (laughs) things through my undergrad? Or is it that I've been essentially bestowed with this title of you know, crappy title of teaching assistant that suddenly... <laughs> a crappy uh, paycheck of teaching yeah, assistant. Yeah, crappy <laughs> paycheck, exactly. That I suddenly internalized the rules required of me, internalized the duties required of me. Again, not because I've learned them, but because I've been mm. effectively institutionalized to the point that if I am given that sort of... If I'm placed in that position, I will accommodate it. I've been effectively uh, sent through the factory of of schooling and they can then play the part i don't know if you had a similar experience i i I think that you're too uh i think that you feel like you're too integrated within the machine um i think at that point you're no longer in a position of uh conditioned inferiority Right, but th- but then it would just be conditioned but, but, uh, superiority. Uh, 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 <laughs> yeah, exactly. At the same time, you are like you're now in this particular condition where yeah. you are educating the uh, the people who are ignorant, who are not necessarily ignorant either, uh, or you're, or you're teaching your interest to the people who are supposedly uninterested. Um, it's a strange shift. Um, But it's a power dynamic. It's a power dynamic. Oh yeah. Because yeah. the students, well, unless there's someone among them who has, you know, seen through the the veil, um, the students listen to you, because in these institutions, the professor knows more, yeah. or the lecturer knows more than the students. So yeah. you're there to learn. Um, even if you think what the lecturer is saying is bullshit or yeah. you don't necessarily agree with it, you do respect their position within the academy. Um, I think this is not an experience. This is an, this is an experience that doesn't stop or it doesn't fade <laughs> no. away. I, I, I think there are definitely like um, professors who are teaching like grad level seminars who've occasionally feel like frauds i mean there's like the famous you know well i mean i don't know how many people know this but like uh christopher hitchens would often talk about like how he feels like he's got away with something there'll just come a moment where like uh uh he'll be fired from vanity fair because people are like actually no we didn't really we have realized that you're not actually a good journalist or not an yeah. actually good writer um but you can balance that experience with, you know, an institutional role or institutional influence. Yeah. Um, and I think that in this book, and maybe in person, Illich would like go to you and say, David, you do know this stuff. Yeah. You don't need to do it here. You don't need to teach people here. People, look at look at some of these people. They're checking their phones. Um, people are not interested in, in this. Find people who are interested and share what you know with them. That's why I do this. <laughs> exactly. Like it, it, it's um, it's actually where education is more exciting and more I- I- engaging 
uh, in comparison to obligatory classes. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I mean, he doesn't really talk about tuition either, which is interesting. I think. Talk about what tuition? Tuition, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the, I mean, I, I guess this is because it's in a different time where tuition fees aren't discussed uh, as like a, a well, preventative yeah. factor of people entering. No, education. he has that one little comment though about how at a, in a certain time, right? Before that, the university protected an individual's freedom of speech, but did not automatically convert his knowledge into wealth. To be a scholar in the Middle Ages meant to be poor, even a Hell beggar. Yeah. So, right, he isn't talking about tuition, but he is making a comment there as to, you know, how, uh, you know, at a time, there was a time when learning something required someone to give up a lot. Like, you had to sacrifice, right? So, like, you look at some people who, uh, I mean, I I come from, you know, drama school and art school. So, um, a lot of people I know are, like, very poor. Yeah. Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah and doing what I love um, and, and so I get that sense of like having a calling uh, which is different from getting a schooling um, well when I think about the like I was thinking about this earlier it's like who is the people that come to mind when I think about getting a schooling and I think about the Ivy Business School here at Weston yeah they're here to that was they're here to get a degree that translates into economic value immediately yeah um, and it translates into economic value uh, as soon as you graduate because it's embedded in neoliberal institutions that an MBA makes you more um, appealing to employers than people who just have a BA. Yeah. Or like an MA in theory and criticism. I'm sorry yeah, yeah, to yeah. dunk on you, David. That's but, uh, <laughs> um, uh, but, 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 but there is a way of like um, assessing the value of different graduate degrees. That's talking about like uh, that relates to um, what Illich um, thinks about like the institutionalization of, or measurement of. Uh, different values all the all, all the yeah. measurement of institutionalized values let's put it like that so that well that'd be the first and the second myths where it goes institutional values or the myth of Oops. institutional values which would be like the idea that just by going through school it's you know you're actually learning things but you're really yeah. learning about institutional life then the myth of measurement of values where he says that um personal growth is not a measurable entity oh uh, well, yeah i mean why he, he has this juxtaposition between institutionalized values and uh, disciplined dissidents. Right. So he's not like one of these sort of airy-fairy hippies of like anything goes, we'll just take acid and fuck each other. Um, he's like, no, I, I, I trained with monks. I, I, I understand this concept of disciplined dissidents. Uh, it can't be measure, measured against any rod or any curriculum. Um, and it can't be compared to someone else's achievement. Think about how much in our lives that experience is is just embedded in us because we went through the schooling system. Yeah, we feel better than someone else because we got better grades or we have a better institution or yeah. Uh, when but even if we have like degrees of the same name, our institution that we went and graduated from is better than theirs. Exactly. Um, and it's always this comparing the sense that you know. Are the value that's attributed to us is comparable to someone else. 
So this is a way of kind of dropping out of the the, the valuing, the evaluating of uh, institutions, um, and it can't be. Um, Oh, and disciplined dissidents can only be uh, enacted through imaginative endeavour, right? Whatever that means, but it sounds great. Um, and disciplined dissidents is a measurable, a measurable. No measurement is possible here. Recreation is bringing out the idea of leisure. Um, is also connecting it with um, how human beings are. Stamped or impressed with the divine. Yeah. Um, so this is the idea of creation. I mean, to look at it in a more secular way, it's you know, the artistic, it's the expressive, it's the emotional, um, and how that is integral to our to our lives. Um, and uh, with schooling, if someone has submitted to schooling, then unmeasured experiences just slips out of their hands yeah because they don't know how to capture it and they don't think that they're they're allowed to because to do something like that means to to drop out means to uh take a random turn means to yeah it means to uh be a non-conformist and non-conformism is you know become more of a it's become more of an accepted or celebrated value, right? And since Illich was writing, and those people, as he says, that those people that drop out, where he says that the dropout who is forever reminded of what he missed, and the graduate who is made to feel inferior to the new breed of student, know exactly where they stand in the ritual of rising deceptions, and continue to support a society which euphemistically calls the widening frustration gap a revolution of rising expectations. Where is this section? Is is this the section, the myth of the self-perpetuating self progress. progress? Yeah, exactly. Indeed. So, I mean, if it is, he's um, talking about the myth of everything is getting better, everything is getting more right. Um, right. Yeah. Everything is getting more uh, sophisticated. Mm -hmm. So, if you, uh, if you're not participating, then you're not welcome to the party. Um, and I think Illich is suggesting that um, it, it, it's telling you it's not a great party. No, <laughs> no, no. Well, that's it, and that's, um, yeah. and, and, and there are you know better places to go, um, and better things to do, and um, we should you know make our own party. Um, and that's how he kind of equates it with the idea of a kind of world religion to some extent, where it takes on, as he says, um, you know, as Max Weber traced the social effects of the belief that salvation belonged to those who accumulated wealth. We mm -hmm. can now observe that grace is reserved for those who accumulate years in school. Yeah. Which is, I think it speaks Oof. certainly volumes to that. Wow. I mean, it's like it's, it's classic Illich. There's, there's also the line in the section on the coming kingdom, the universalization of expectations of uh, the school. Uh, it's the idea that um, I mean, it, it, he 
how, how do I put this? I mean, it's, it's an allusion to the last days and everyone who's a true believer will be accepted up to heaven. Uh, and he thinks that there's an analogy between everyone thinking that if they just uh, participate in that school, then they'll be able to right. be involved in this paradise of the meritocracy, I, I, I guess. The, uh, but he's talking about the seeds of uh, uh, meritocracy as it's a... Uh, Meritocracy, as it's emerging in the United States and Europe, and will you know become uh, more more established under neoliberalism, but in a uh, in a hollow way. Uh, so it, 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 here he's talking about that. The school-induced expectation of the kingdom, on the other hand, is impersonal rather than prophetic, and universal rather than local. Man has become the engineer of his own messiah, right. and promises unlimited rewards of science to those who submit to progressive engineering for his reign. So, I mean, there's a certain sense of uh, profanity yeah. uh, and yeah. hubris yeah. to uh, what, what people are trying to accomplish with institutions and with schooling. And I know that you're pretty, um, pretty uh, paganistic, um, so I, I wonder what you felt about this, uh, these religious overtones that enter Illich's work at certain <laughs> points. Well, well, it is it is very apparent that he's, um, you know, a thoroughgoing Catholic. I mean, his his, his Catholicism is showing at this point, definitely. Yeah, and the, you know, there I, are I, 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 no, sorry, just to interrupt for you, but this also comes into a play when he's talking about the Prometheus myth. Yeah, the yeah final yeah, chapter. Yeah. It's like. Don't don't fuck with the gods because they'll fuck with you and they'll fuck with you worse. And in his context, he's talking about there is this sacred order that come that we inherit from the medieval time period that really underlines all, underlies all of our concepts about ourselves. If we mess up the shit, it could go really wrong. Yeah. Um, yeah. This is, and I think at this point, this is where we're talking about, like uh, in the twenty first century, where we are at the moment, like. It can go into eco-fascism. It can go into like transhumanism, um, and I mean, well, I can just go into fascism generally. Um, so I mean, I was curious about what you what you thought about uh, the clearly uh, theological echoes in you know, yeah. But he work. has an interesting kind of theological perspective where he seems as though it seems to me as though he would be as uh, reticent to accept the idea of a kind of world religion or a oh, world yeah. institution through which we can attain our relationship to uh, God or through something oh, like that. Oh, yeah, no, I think that's true. So I think that there are, he, if we consider oh. the relationship between schooling and education and then between church and God, Hi. we can draw a oh, similar yeah. parallel Indeed. where he, he wants Hi. to get at those institutional formations, keeping in mind that education and God aren't the problem in Hi. those cases. Well, I don't. I, I, that's that's reminded me of other stuff I've that I've read, and I should have thought about that earlier. But uh, he wrote this paper in the nineties. I can't remember what it was called, but he talked about the lay literacy. The what? The, uh, the, the lay lay literacy. What is that? Um, in the sense of like the layman. Oh. Uh, okay. As opposed to the priest. Oh, I see. I see. Uh, I see. As opposed to the priesthood. Um, so when he's talking about literacy, he's talking about lay literacy. I see. And how it is not institutionalized, how it's not tied up with a specific role. And so he writes about information technologies as a threat to lay literacy. 
because it doesn't information technologies don't seem to equip people with the same knowledge or uh, methods to um, challenge authority in the same way mm-hmm. um, and I guess that in that sense um, he would ascribe you know I mean I think he uses this language in several places but the priesthood to um, uh, teachers oh what is that awesome. that, that sounds like a motorcycle um, if, 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 if he compare he would probably compare um, the priesthood to um, uh, teachers of in schools um, and lay literacy the people who are engaging in like the the networks where people uh, come together over you know a book that interests them to discuss it Right, and and that brings up another interesting point where he, keeping in mind these possibilities of engaging in an an anti-school kind of schooling um, or non-school what, what, schooling. What, de-schooling? de-schooling. What, he says right off, like pretty plainly, liberation from the grips of school could be bloodless in the way that you and I are doing it now, or how he, how he explains uh, almost like a dating app where people who have similar yeah, interests could, like yeah, could, yeah. could just go with that. But he also has a, an, another interesting point about about Marxists, or about neo-Marxists, a very popular term. Oh, yeah, indeed. Where he says... That, are, you, are you talking about... Uh, this is a strange interpretation of Illich as like the proto-Jordan Peterson. Okay. <laughs> I, w- I wasn't going to make... I, you said it, I didn't say it. <laughs> well, I, but I mean, he, he's the specter that haunts our conversations. Um, continue. Yeah, he looks like a ghost. So, <laughs> so it, what he says is that this Let's is often... he becomes one soon. Yeah. <laughs> oh, shit. I'm going to get the hate, man. <laughs> what he says... This is often forgotten by neo-Marxist analysis who say that the process of de-schooling must be postponed or bracketed until other until disorders, yeah. traditionally understood as more fundamental, are corrected by an economic and political revolution. What do you make of that? Well, it's just like uh, him talking about scientists like socialists or vulgar Marxists. Or like, no, no, what you don't understand is that the superstructure... Can't be changed unless we change the base. Yeah, yeah they're two yeah. different things. Yeah, and they don't, uh, and they only interact uh, in very um, minor ways. Um, and it's just like, well, you don't. I mean, guys, 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 <laughs> um, you do realize that the way that people, the way that this current society gets people to support the base is through the superstructure, right? If you want people to change the base, yeah, we need to start with the superstructure, right? Because it's e- it's easier to infiltrate the superstructure under capitalism because to infiltrate the base, you need a hell of a lot of money. At that point, I'm sorry, but you're a capitalist, right? Uh, and wasn't there that moment with Gramsci where he saw he saw the workers take over the factories and they didn't know what to do with them? Like what? Are we, <laughs> what do we do with this? Just <laughs> give them back. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, that's. But it, it, yeah. It, it, it is a sense of like just. I mean, people. Uh, people spend a lot of time in their minds. Um, even if they uh, spend a lot of time working with their bodies, 
I think that is just important to consider. You know, why do people think what they think or what they believe what they believe? Yeah. Um, yeah. And it looks just like well, I, I mean, it's obvious that you know certain forms of belief and certain forms of thinking like feed into institutionalization. It describes social roles to people. There's this hierarchy between who goes off to be a teacher, who goes off to be a worker, and whose children ends up being taught by the teacher. Um, and this society ascribes different values to that. Um, so, really, if we want to, I mean, de-schooling will never completely address class, the, the dynamics of class struggle. Yeah, obviously, but. It means that they are more exposed. Mm -hmm. I think. Um, I think this is where it, what why he's talking about myths and ritual because myth and ritual cloak, and so to take those things away means that the cloaking devices of capital are removed. Right. Um, I don't think we. I mean, we can never really have an un unmediated relation to capital. I mean, Marx understood that you had to engage in abstraction to actually understood understands, you know, the commodity or exchange value, which are like very integral parts of the way that capitalism functions. Um, but like less, yeah, <laughs> the less bullshit you have to deal with, uh, the better that you can that you can really get to uh, understand what's happening. I think. Um, I, but as like uh, Elliot says, I mean, like, de-schooling is really the root of any movement of human liberation. Yeah. And so you need to uh, change people's minds before you change people's lives. Because that, uh, at that point, you're like, the, the, but people will change their lives themselves. Yeah, that. Yeah, that's a good place to. We'll, we'll stop this one here and we'll continue it in a minute. Uh -huh. So, yeah, for anyone who wants to keep listening to this, how, check, what, out, how, check out the next one. How, how far are we in? An hour and nine minutes. An hour and nine minutes. Oh man, I should have brought two bottles of wine. <laughs> well, you still have the white. Uh, yeah, I still have the white. Indeed, <laughs> but uh, um, who knows? I mean, it might be you know. Uh, a four hour and, and, uh, and no, a half. No, we'll 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 cut off at the three hour mark. Okay. Yeah, we'll cut off this.